Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 201. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. I contribute material to every issue, so give it a try. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way-out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. Fifty-two pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners. Get a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to theslowpoisoner at gmail.com That's theslowpoisoner at gmail.com while supplies last. On sale now is Mark Arlo's latest book called Pac-Man, the first animated show based upon a video game. This book tells the story of Pac-Man phenomenon and goes through the entire history of the Hanna-Barbera Animation Studios. The history of the video games, pre-Pac-Man, the history of Pac-Man, the character, the video game, the spin-offs, the merchandise, and the anime TV series. Each and every episode of the classic 1980 series is covered and examined. Plus, Mark Arnold covers how Pac-Man has been honored on various anniversaries, including the 40th anniversary in 2021. A fun read for casual and hardcore Pac-Man and video game fans alike, featuring many character model sheets and other images. Available online through Bear Manor Media, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. Get your copy today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. Stars of Walt Disney Productions is my latest book, Out Now. I just turned in the manuscript for Not Just Happy Together, the Turtles A to Z, from AM Radio to Zappa. It's a book I've been co-writing with Charles Rosenay. I'm doing the final edits and photo selection of my Mad Book, and that will be turned in next. I'm also working on my TV cartoons at Time Forgot book, plus articles on Nightmare, The Galloping Ghost, and Harvey Superheroes. On today's show, we have a writer who has written a book about the 1941 Disney strike called The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. 
Here he is, Jake S. Friedman. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. And on today's podcast, we have an author who has written a great book about uh, the Disney strike. And uh, it is right here called The Disney Revolt. And we'll be talking about this at great length. And it is Jake S. Friedman. And there he is. How are you, sir? (laughs) I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Great to see you. Hi, Mark. Hi. So um, before we started on the air, I, I kind of said at first, I was like, you know, uh, our mutual friend Camden Spees was like all excited about this book and everything. And he was going to join us tonight, but then he had other pressing engagements. So I said, OK, but, uh, you know, he was all excited about the book. Uh, even Jerry Beck, who helped you with some information, was excited about the book. And I was just like, why? <laughs> Hasn't there been enough about the disney strike i don't know um but you know i got a copy of the book and because you're gonna be on the show and read through it and i actually really liked the writing style but i i learned some stuff so i go okay i guess there was something to be said about uh the disney strike of 1941 and you know there's always seemingly something else to learn about disney so i guess the uh, first question would just be, what inspired you to write about the Disney strike? Well, um, the short answer is uh, John Culhane. Mm. Uh, John Culhane, he was one of the forefathers of, his, of, of animation history. Uh, and he wrote one of my favorite books when I was a kid called The Art of Aladdin, The Making of Aladdin, an animated mm-hmm. film. And he was my teacher of animation history at NYU. Ooh, cool. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I, I adored him and I adored his course so much. And after I graduated, um, uh, I took his class three times, once for credit and then two more times just to be in his presence. I hope it wasn't because you're flunking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was not flunking. <laughs> no, he was he was so exuberant. He just he, it was hard to get anything less than an A in his class. He just he was he loved life. He loved animation. He was just a big kid. He was at, at the time when I knew him, he was in his 60s. He was the. Mm-hmm. But he was really like a child in the body of a six-year-old. He just loved the childlike whimsy of Disney and of animation. And I just loved that energy. And I had to be around it. And so after I graduated, he, um, and I was already a, an animation history buff, you know, armchair buff up to that point. But after I graduated, um, a couple of years later, around 2007 or 2008, he, he handed me this project. He said, you're going to write the story of, Art Babbitt and the Disney strike. Art Babbitt being the guy who led the strike. And I was like, uh, what? How? When? Who? I was totally <laughs> disoriented. <laughs> he, but he believed in me. And he got me in touch with Art Babbitt's widow. Mm-hmm. And it was she who wanted this, this book written to sort of cement her late husband's legacy. Because she feared accurately that his name was kind of being stripped from Disney history and animation history. So she wanted him to be remembered. Mm-hmm. And uh, and John said, and she knew John, and John said, I know just the guy. And at the time I was like 27 uh-huh. and I had written zero books. I'd written some articles for Animation Magazine and that was that was it in like my local newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started a long, long journey of me mm-hmm. visiting Barbara at her house, which was once Art Babbitt's house and digging through his personal artifacts and his files and 
going through different archives and different records across the country and finding people who had some personal relics of their own who were supportive in this project. And from that day, John telling me I was going to write this book until the day it was published was a, a span of 14 years. 14 so, years, wow. 14 years, yeah. I wasn't on the project every one of those years, but it was yep. always on the back burner in various stages of, of effort. Yep. And, and it took a while to even get a publisher it's a, um, once I landed an, an agent, the, the origin, uh, the original scope of the book was just this, the, the strike. No, it's, excuse me. It was Babbitt's life, birth to death, mm. but no publisher wanted to buy that. They're like, <laughs> right. They were like, no, one's going to read it. No, yeah. maybe, maybe 20 people will read a book about just art Babbitt. Right. So I had to sort of like reinvent the idea and scrap some chapters and write some new chapters and sort of psychoanalyze Walt Disney a little bit and figure out how Walt and art were like this at the beginning and then were ripped apart by their politics and nearly right. broke the studio. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, uh, I didn't sense that it was supposed to be an Art Babbitt biography because you kind of went through Walt Disney's life equally at least up front you know and and so you know obviously i knew it was about the strike so it's like it's interesting because i did learn quite a bit about art babbitt that i didn't know um years ago i'll say this just you know my introduction to the whole thing strangely enough was in i i grew up in california and in san francisco there's a radio host named alex bennett and he used to have stand-up comedians on the show and this is like in the 90s before howard stern kind of took over the airwaves nationwide so he was like the original um but um uh he used to have art babbitt's daughter on the show who is a stand-up comedian i don't know if you talked to her in the course of doing that but she used to reveal little bits of information and everything like that but they couldn't get terribly in depth even though art uh even though um um the uh host was very you know interested in the subject he had to keep moving on and you know going back to playing music and other things so he couldn't just talk about it exclusively but you know it, it is where i first learned some names and everything and stuff like that um mm. but um yeah that, that would be karen babbitt yeah k-a-r-i-n yeah. i couldn't remember her first name because it's yeah. been 30 years anyway <laughs> but uh, um you know, uh, the the thing that I learned, and I'll try to go through all my notes here because I wrote copious notes here, but uh, doesn't mean I will remember what I read. Um, the thing I liked the best about it is it kind of goes into the detail of why the union was important and what the union was about. And also it kind of explained, because I always had this kind of thought about the the Disney um, strike and everything. It's like, well, how necessary was it for every, I mean, you know, if they didn't want to work a particular day, couldn't they just stay home, but maybe it wasn't that easy. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, working at Disney was a little more grueling than I originally thought. You know, it's, And if you don't get any benefits, I guess you have, you have to work, you know, even if you don't want to things like that. Um, but I, it seems like you explained it also as why uh, the cart, let's see, what is it called? The Screen Cartoonist Guild was the mm -hmm. one that was the important union versus, say, any of the other 
uh, you know, entertainment related unions, which you did list a bunch of them, of course, the obvious one, like the Screen Actors Guild, and, right. you know, everything like that. Um, now, in doing your research, did you find everything from just uh, talking to the Babbitts or was it uh, going through like, you know, well, tell me your process, I guess. <laughs> okay. let's, let's go like that. Okay. Well, the strike is such a contentious issue. Yeah. Even today, mm-hmm. even with just fans um, and people who want to say that they know everything about Walt Disney and, and, and think that he's either a saint or a villain and he's he's just a human i mean for goodness sake you know let the guy be human (laughs) that i wanted to really use sources that were close to close to the time of the strike i didn't want to really go and use interviews from people who were remembering the strike after decades of feeling you know through a colored lens that shapes their perception of what had happened all those years ago. I wanted to go through documents from that time. So I used, there were like three pillars of research materials that I came across. One was Babbitt's personal records in his, in, in his home. Another was um, in San Francisco, there's a circuit, the ninth circuit court of appeals. It had the entire, the, the 1500 page uh, court document, including wow. <laughs> of, of when Babbitt, through, through the union, sued the Disney company, specifically Walt. He sued Walt. It had every page of the court transcript. It had every shred of evidence. So that was extremely helpful. That was just a few months after the strike, about about like maybe 11 months after the strike. And the third pillar was um, uh, the CSU, um, Northridge Oviat Library, mm-hmm. which is... Um, a university in Southern California that has a huge collection of labor materials and Mm. someone involved with the strike. I think it was Pepe Ruiz, who was an MGM artist and one of, and he was um, uh, Bill Littlejohn's right-hand man. He was, Bill Littlejohn was the head of the union, head of the Screen Cartoonist Guild. I think he donated all of his materials. And I say, I think it was him because his, his name was on an envelope in the collection. So um, we're talking about like flyers and bulletins and everything that was like a day-by-day, day-by-day account of what was happening before the strike and during the strike. Like memos that were posted on the bulletin board at the Disney studio before the strike, copies of Walt's speech that he gave or speeches that he gave. Mm -hmm. Anything that was handed out to the employees, Mm -hmm. this guy saved, somehow he saved. Uh, or collected from other Disney artists mm-hmm. and um, and and donated to to this collection. I mean, there were such cool rarities, like the songs the strikers sang, parody songs, <laughs> and sketches that they drew, mm-hmm. some of which have been seen before, but most of the materials in there have not. No, they have not. <laughs> you know, that's why I was like amazed at the thoroughness of all this. Um was the Disney archives itself any help or are they kind of hush hush about all this type of stuff at this point? Well, I reached out to them. I was above board and I sent them my manuscript upon their request, the whole thing, mm-hmm. page one to page final, finality page, <laughs> <laughs> every single page. I wanted some, I wanted some IP. I wanted the permission to put a picture of Goofy, you know, mm-hmm. since Art Babbitt, like basically was the father of Goofy. 
and mm-hmm. maybe like the Wicked Queen or some other main characters that Babbitt was the lead animator, supervising animator for. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very insistent that they wanted to see what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, here's what I'm doing. I'm not making Walt a villain. Here's every page of my book. And I didn't hear back from them. They were very, very quick to respond when they wanted something from me. And once I gave it to them, I didn't hear anything back. So they didn't help, nor did they hinder. Um, That's good. What types of things did they ask about or ask you besides reading it? um, They asked me, uh, I I got some images. It wasn't really an extensive dialogue. There were some images that I that I wanted high res images of, like like uh, um, model sheets that had Babbitt's name on it, you know, like for Moving Day or things like that. The 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 short, the Mickey Donald Goofy short called Moving Day, and they um and and I sent them like an image that I found online, and they said, "Where did you get this image?" I was like, "Just from a website." Some person posted. I don't know. This is the <laughs> internet. And I say, how about this picture of Geppetto that's in the um, Disney uh, Family Museum? Because there's a sketch, a very rough sketch of Geppetto that I'm sure, even though it's not signed, I really got to know Art Babbitt's drawing style. I'm sure it's by Art Babbitt. And I wanted to have that in the book. And they're like, where did you get this picture? I said, I, well, I photographed it during one of my visits at the Family Museum. I was like, how about this? This is of a non-Disney character. This is of a political cartoon Walt did when he was 19 years old. Of, of baby new year uh-huh. closing the door or about to open the door of 1920 the year 1920 and what's waiting for him as walt drew it are ominously written strikes and coal strike and rail strike and <laughs> <laughs> how about this can i have this it's not of a disney character they're like where did you get this i'm like i photographed it in the museum so I, the people at the Walt Disney Family Museum were very nice, but they said, we can't act independently of the company. The company needs to give their 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 okay before we do anything, even before we carry anything in our gift shop, mm. even before we put anything on display, the company needs to okay it. Mm. But the, the the people at the museum are so nice and so supportive, They're but their hands are tied by the company. Um, I hope that in my book, I was able to clear up some uh, mythos that had been perpetuated by detractors of Walt Disney because people are so quick to call him so many names. And I don't think he's, he's any of those things except just stubborn, stubborn and and traumatized by his own experiences during his youth. That's all. And, you know, it, it, it sounds like it would be in his own best interest not to unionize at least initially because um, if you don't prove a financial reason to do it, which is probably what motivated him in this case, then why do it? Um, I, I found it interesting. Let's see. At one point, uh, you said of the six studios in Hollywood, only two had joined the union right away, or at least were joined before Disney joined or anything like that. Um, it goes into that a little bit, but it's like, it, was there the same type of resistance and hesitation from the other studios or was Walt kind of like the odd man out? And, or... By the time the strike happened, all five other studios had, had joined the union. Okay. Had accepted the union. The first one was MGM, which is a, a big deal because it's a big film studio and they had a very successful shorts department, cartoon shorts department. Mm-hmm. Um, and the others just followed suit one by one. 
And they were of various sizes, the animation studios. George Powell, which mm-hmm. some, some listeners or viewers may not even know, did like stop motion shorts out of wood. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then there was Universal and then there was Paramount, uh, which were responsible for um, Universal was, uh, they kind of like picked up the Fleischer properties mm-hmm. um, and Paramount did uh the i'm sorry i'm going backwards i'm going backwards paramount picked up the fleischer and universal was like the lance studio which is like the woodpecker and (laughs) andy panda yeah we'll mix them up and then and then shortly before the strike like days before the strike leon schlesinger signed with the union so he was doing porky pig and a character that would become daffy duck and the character that would become bugs bunny okay um and so um he was he was hesitant but he wasn't really anti-union he just kind of for the same reasons Walt kind of stood off he he wanted to maintain power and he was interested in just like maintaining control um people at the Lance studio had a parallel experience at Disney because there was like an in-company union which is not legal it's not legal to have like a bogus management-led union and there were people who loved Lance and Lance's management were like, we will lead this union. And then that didn't last very long before the bona fide union, the independent union came in and mm-hmm. abolished them. And everyone was just happy, happy go like, that's fine. Right. Um, so, so those, those five studios all had their union. The animators as a craft were the last craft to be unionized in Hollywood. So the Disney studio was the last studio the animators were the last craft. The Disney animators were like the last group in Hollywood who had not been signed on for an independent union yet. Mm-hmm. And they just wanted, at first, their first initial reason was like they wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to block any like uh, mafia-led attempts to organize. They wanted to be led by this like clean independent union that that was led by Bill Littlejohn over at MGM. Um, and, and, um, and at first the company was like, yeah, okay. And then when they, when the, when the unionists wanted to negotiate, the company was like, no, we're not going to negotiate. And Art Babbitt was the leader of this effort and he felt like a stool pigeon, like he was used by the company. So he decided to, um, take matters into his own hands. I I spent the first few chapters of the book describing how Walt became Walt and how Art Babbitt became Art Babbitt. So we can really see like why they stood so strongly in their convictions like they did. Right. Um, was there ever a time, because I don't think he ever did, is there ever a time that uh, Art Babbitt ever considered like running his own studio or anything like that? Or um ever in his life yeah um he he co-owned a studio with a few people that was quartet films oh i i didn't know that (laughs) yeah yeah no they did mostly commercials animated commercials later on later on way down the line yeah 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 i mean i'm doing a book now called tv cartoon and this is with jerry beck's blessing too Um, (laughs) called tv cartoons a time for god but i'm not really covering all the commercial studios because Jesus, there's a million of them, <laughs> but it may creep into the narrative somehow because um, 
there's a lot of them in that regard but you know no. i'm trying i'm trying to cover the studios that may have had like one hit or two hits like linus the lionhearted or calvin and the colonel that type of stuff and it's mainly tv cartoons but anyway that's okay. off topic uh <laughs> anyway um if you end up doing last of the red hot dragons by the Seamus Culhane studio, John Culhane voiced the dragon in that okay. in that TV cartoon. Okay. Just uh, you know, fun fact. By the Very way, cool. here's Art Babbitt. Well, there he is holding a picket sign. <laughs> For your YouTube viewers, this was during the premiere of the Reluctant Dragon, mm-hmm. the, the LA premiere, um, where all the Disney artists dressed up in their black ties and gowns and were driven up chauffeured by other disney artists and had and dressed like for a premiere and instead of entering the theater they picketed outside the theater in their black ties and gowns holding these picket signs for the la premiere of the reluctant dragon i always thought it was interesting or funny that (laughs) this particular strike had like the best looking picket signs ever because everybody was an artist and so they used the characters and things like that oh yeah you know yeah a hundred percent yeah um one thing i didn't know also is uh that uh how long the strike lasted i I probably read it before but i mean since you went through it like step by step like when uh you know the strike kind of started what i think i wrote down may 28th 1941 Mm -hmm. and uh then they started negotiating about five weeks into it and um the strikers at the reluctant dragon which you're showing that was july 4th 1941 and Mm -hmm. uh the end of the strike you put july 30th and then they had a a union contract by august 2nd Mm -hmm. um i didn't realize it had gone that long which you know some people might argue that's not very long at all but you know well, when you're relying on people to animate your work, June, July, August, you know, three or four months, that's, you know, yeah, time, you know. Yeah, yeah, it is. Most most of their books about the strike erroneously say five weeks. Yeah. And, and I think I believe that. And that's probably why I had the initial thought is this is so quick. It's almost a blip on the radar. Is this even worth talking about? But no. Yeah. You, yeah. Nine weeks. Death. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is like a whole summer. These people are going out from May until they finally went in at the start of August. I mean, mm-hmm. you have your whole summer when you plan to get paid and you're not. So instead of receiving their paychecks, all of these artists are just picketing for for a union. Mm-hmm. Um, they were risking a lot. You know, they really they really wanted to do, change the studio for the better and and they were putting themselves in the hot seat to do so. Mm-hmm. It was it was very close. The number of strikers just barely outnumbered the people who stayed in. Mm-hmm. You mean the people that just uh, not go crossed out. the line and, and still yeah. went to work? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 Um, now, let's do some hypotheticals. And I think you did talk about a little bit in the book, you know, what if Disney was the evil tyrant that everybody makes him out to be. And when everybody went on strike, uh, he just would just fire everybody. And that would have been the end of it. Um, how oh, do, how that, do you, well, how, that, that's that possible? Yeah. No, I was going to say that's and... illegal. <laughs> that's illegal. Thanks to something that at the time was relatively yeah. new. Yeah. Um, called the national labor relations act. And there were basically yeah. five, 
tenets to it. And one of them was you can't discriminate for union activity. So if you fire someone for going out on strike, you're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Um, relatively new, 1933, I think yeah, the National yeah. Labor Relations Act came about. Under I think Roosevelt. you talked about that. I wrote that down here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, so, you know, obviously that wasn't... Um, did, do you feel that there is really no alternative to what ultimately happened that the union had to be joined and and there wouldn't have been any other possible outcome in doing your research or did you think you know why did they do that they should have done this or something like that um when you're doing your research well i think you know strikes are called a lot mostly empty threats um and uh, they're often resolved very quickly, at least at the time. Um, there are some standout strikes in Hollywood, but if you sit down and read those variety newspapers like I did, you'll see that people are calling strikes all the time. There was a strike called at Disney like a month before the actual strike was called. And, <laughs> and that's, that's in the book too. Um, so uh, I, think, I think the strikers before they were strikers, I, I think the the pro-union artists just felt dragged around, pulled yeah. around by the studio. They felt taken advantage of. They felt like they were discriminated against already because so many of them had already been fired um, versus the ones that were not going to the union meetings. They saw the coercion that the management was doing to try and get artists, the young artists, the uh, you know, the up and comers who were working at Disney to not join the union. Mm-hmm. And they, they just didn't like, it just got uglier and uglier over time. Yeah. So I, I think this was just like an emotional eruption. Right. As, as well as strategic. Um, so it seems to be that like it was inevitable, even if, you know, the only thing that would have varied is maybe the duration of the strike, depending on what they did. That's, that's what I kind of get out of it. That you know, it, 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 there's no other way around it. Especially if all the other stu- studios joined in and uh, you know joined the union. You know, if they didn't join immediately, they joined eventually, and so it kind of gave the union more power and stuff like that. So, well, you know, in one of the meetings that that the Disney artists had before this, like five months before the strike. They say that Walt is just oblivious of the of the turning tide that's happening in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, the social change, like he's he's not recognizing what's happening. Um, and I think, you know, there were two main folks over at the Disney Studio who were who were basically egging Walt on to to stand strong against any sort of union activity. And one was his vice president who he trusted a great deal, who I write about a lot in this book. And the other was the head of the HR department named Hal Adelquist. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he called himself the, 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 the personnel director. He basically knew everyone on the creative side of the studio and most of management. Like he had come up from the, the lowest ranks to be basically be like the assistant director of Snow White and then head of personnel. And he like it, it. It was he who decided who got what assignments, and um, when whenever any of the loyal artists 
saw a pro-union artist walk into a union meeting, they reported it to Hal Adelquist, the, mm. the, the personnel director. So that's not very nice. I don't think this little witch hunt that's going on. <laughs> and and as far as the vice president egging Walt on, like he's kind of like pushing Walt to, to consider that everything is communist led and to fear communism. And and um, he has his own like nefarious reasons for doing that, too. Right. Like you, you mentioned the book, and I, I guess I probably have read this before, but it didn't register is that uh, Disney's own father, Elias, was a communist. Socialist. Uh, socialist. Oh, okay. But I thought you said communist too. I, I wrote down communist, but on my notes. But anyway, but socialist. Socialist. <laughs> Still, there's like similarity in some regard to that in a certain way. It's like, you know, uh, did that uh, alter or affect uh, Walt's view on unions and things like that? Was he, you know, severely anti union or? Well, um, yeah. I- I sort of paint a picture of young Walt growing up, yeah. seeing that seeing his dad as a member of the Socialist Party. That's kind of the difference, I would say, between yeah. the communism idea, idea and and socialism is that the Socialist Party was much more widely accepted at the turn of the century, the la- the pre- uh, prior century, and uh, lots of folks of Walt's generation or their fathers rather were members of the Socialist Party, which was led by Eugene Debs, particularly because Eugene Debs was anti-World War I. He said, there's no reason for the US to join this war. Lots of people are gonna be killed. It's something that, and all the people who are going to be sent in are gonna be like poor people. Why is it gonna be waged by the rich and fought by the poor? And the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson made it illegal to protest the war. Which I don't, th- I also don't think is very nice either. So, so Eugene Debs went to jail for protesting the war, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, pretty, pretty, pretty cool. That's a pretty cool thing to do, uh, fighting for his free speech. So, a lot of people were behind Eugene Debs and socialism, and, and um, Walt's dad was one of them. Walt, in his way, joined the war effort. Knowing his dad was a member of this party, a follower of Eugene Dead, mm-hmm. and Walt, you know, fixed his uh, his application so as to lie about his age, so he could, so he could become an ambulance driver over in France <laughs> after after the armistice, which for him was a, a lot of fun, you know. Um. So, it seems like on on one hand, Walt was yes raging against his dad because his dad was this taskmaster. Who made him do this paper route that caused him to, I don't know, as he would say, have nightmares into his adulthood, you know, <laughs> panic, panic, wake up in the middle of the night thinking he has to wake up for the paper route of his youth. But also he loved his dad and he saw that his dad had been taking advantage of other uh, socialist pyramid schemes. Yeah. Um. So there's both those things going on, and neither of them paint socialism in a in an appetizing way for Walt Disney. No. Uh, but I found, yeah, I, I I was able to find some stuff about Walt that had never been in print before about Walt's early years, um, piecing together things that he had just mentioned in interviews and digging deeper into that and and realizing and learning that, oh, this is the cartoon, the socialist cartoon that he used to draw from his dad's newspaper oh this this is the 
this is the the um the farm collective that his dad was a part of which was widely considered to be a pyramid scheme that took advantage of gullible farmers like Walt's dad yeah. you know I was like oh this paints a much fuller picture of how Walt viewed his own dad mm-hmm. and um it's just it's just interesting in reading about all that it's like and then uh probably you know just a decade later then then he has to kind of go through a different situation with the red scare and communism and socialism again with the mccarthy uh witch hunt there and it's like i know these two aren't related but i mean i'm sure it's crossed his mind here we go again but uh, you know (laughs) another situation that would well, affect his company you know yeah. at least you know <laughs> yeah that's a well if you're talking about about the red scare yeah. i mean yeah that starts that starts now actually you know in his in, in the political cartoon that he drew mm-hmm. a few on the cusp of 1920 one of the things that's one of the fears the turmoil that's busting through the door that baby new year is is has yet to open is is the word reds reds <laughs> are an impending threat Mm-hmm. for Walt Disney. Um and that just that just kind of grew. That that thread of red kind of grew until it did become the red scare after really kind of a little during during the strike it really started taking off then and the conservative newspapers were talking about the communist threat. It was just fear-mongering like yeah. nothing nothing ended up happening. We call it, you know, now we know that it's the McCarthy witch hunt. You know, now we can read Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, and see that it's just a commentary on a corrupt system. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, people were genuinely scared. Yeah. The part that upsets me is just people that were totally blacklisted for no real reason other than, you know, claiming a belief. And sometimes they weren't even claiming a belief. They were just somebody... uh, read off their name for you know you know list some people that you know are communists or a socialist or whatever you know and then suddenly you're tagged and the only way you can get out of it is name some other people and it's like big domino effect it's kind of a weird thing but anyway yeah yeah very unfortunate um now the screen cartoonist guild was obviously the union the most of the strikers were there you you mentioned a lot of different unions was there a, a need or a reason for any of these uh, animators to join other unions uh or was just that one the one that w- would suffice for most people doing the standard animation jobs of you know say you know even writing scripting storyboarding in betweening ink and paint and all that it it, it would cover all those various positions or uh, would somebody have a need to join other unions as well or in place of that? Well, if, if you were, if you were what they called a screen cartoonist yeah. or someone, someone who's making any sort of art for animation, then you would join the screen cartoonist guild. That was the clean union that the mafia were, right. were not touching. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there was the IATSE, which was mafia led. And I talk about the guy who was yep. leading that <laughs> and trying. Yeah. yeah. This guy, Willie Bioff, who <laughs> came straight from Chicago and now is trying to bring in as many people under him, sign up as many crafts workers in Hollywood as he can so he can 
blackmail studio heads and threaten to take their workers out on strike if they don't pay them what became $550,000. This is back in like 1939. $550,000 1939 went pretty far. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. So this mafia guy is, is profiled in the book too. He's a villain. Yeah. He's a villain. He, the vice president, Walt Disney, not the villain. Right. Yeah. Um, so obviously that was resolved was uh just the screen cartoonist guild becoming more powerful was that really the catalyst that uh kind of bumped this other situation out of there or is it more difficult than that oh uh, you mean that that got the, the willy buy off out of the picture yeah, yeah, yeah oh well um <laughs> i i talk about it uh on in in the last third of the book what happened to willie Bayoff, right that that he um i mean i don't want to spoil anything for okay the readers. all right well leave, leave, leave but, it for the readers i just got yeah. i know i know it's in the book but anyway yeah. okay. but basically what 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 caught up with him was the same thing that caught up to al capone his mentor his got, unofficial got okay <laughs> mentor. okay that's fair enough yeah um let's see uh, i'm trying to see where we were at here um, one of the things that I found fascinating, and I'm sure it was listed somewhere easily accessible, considering where you got your, you know, documents and everything, was just the list of everyone who was working at the studio, and then the people that uh, went on strike versus not going on strike, and then the people that you described, the people that uh, were laid off, I forgot the amount of time, within three years or something like that because i know they weren't supposed to fire any of the striking workers once they went back to work but you know even babbitt uh got laid off and came back and you know it never was the same and then he went on to do other things so i mean Mm -hmm. was it really ever the same for the people that went on strike uh I mean, it, it, it's got to be an awkward situation, no matter how long a time has passed that, you know, you're, you're on strike against the company you want to work at, and then you come back and it's like, well, I I get to work here now, but is everybody like looking at me because I went out on strike last year or three years ago or five years ago? So, oh my God. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're hitting the nail on the head. So this is, uh, I, I don't really write about this in the book. I, right. I, my editor had to, he asked me to trim down as many pages as as could fit in this book. So the thing that, that happened post-strike, I just sort of like had to fast forward through what happened right. after this book. And, and um, so did you get any information on that? I mean, I know it's not in the book, but I'm just kind of curious about it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the energy was was different. And I think I, I kind of hinted that, mm-hmm. uh, that like it just wasn't the same. Friendships were broken forever. People who were friends before the strike who were on different sides of the fight ended up not talking to each other, even if they're working together. Those who went out um, and then resumed working at the studio didn't really socialize with the people who were loyal and didn't leave during the strike. It was like two different camps. Hmm. Um, and it was, uh, it, it was like a very, like the energy was torn. Um, in addition to that, a lot of the like benefits that Walt thought that his artists would love, um, like the 
they had like a uh, like like a coffee shop and they had an auto shop on the lot and they had all of these cool things. It was kind of like the Google company. Like people talk about all the yeah. great things. <laughs> so, so like there was something like that, that kind of energy. Well, all of those luxuries were kind of cut and they were like mm-hmm. after that, the energy changed. There were people monitoring time and there were people who were monitoring uh uh, how what what costs were spent where it was also like this was also the beginning of world war ii so so the 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 studio was already hurting financially and there was a lot that they were trying to juggle during yeah. this very complicated time mm-hmm. i mean they were they were dog paddling they were barely staying afloat now um this next question is obviously hypothetical but Let's say the strike went through and it got resolved and there was no World War II directly after it, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think uh, Disney would have become a stronger company, weaker company, or stayed about the same if if that didn't happen? The world World stronger, stronger, way stronger. World War II and the rest of the rest of the 40s. It was kind of like a tiny little dark ages for the Disney studio. Not that I have anything against the package films that they did, yeah. but it was like they weren't like the kind of Disney masterpieces that the audience wanted. Right. So uh, if not for World War II, and World War II hurt Pinocchio's box office returns, yeah. hurt Fantasia's box office returns. But it's, a, it's also the reason why Dumbo exists. Like right. that's one of my favorite films, mm-hmm. Dumbo. Perfect but, storytelling. But also for World War II, I mean, the, the government, you know, gave out money to do like special training films and stuff like that, not just for Disney, but Warner's and the other studios and things like that. So, I mean, did that help ease the pain or was it still kind of like, you know, not enough? You know, I guess Disney survived. So I guess that's the ultimate answer because it's still around now after a hundred years. But, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's just always the hypothetical, you know, how much damage does this strike do? But you're saying basically it was for the best, you know, and World War II probably wasn't the, the biggest help at the time. Is that what I'm getting at? World War II, yeah, it was the presence of World War II goes hand in hand with the company just like hurting for finances and the reason why uh, a lot of the artists wanted a union and and one big one of the big reasons was spontaneous layoffs that were happening they didn't feel like they had any job security and, and they didn't know who to complain to they didn't they they just had no uh collective bargaining they wanted to have a grievance committee they wanted to have someone who could speak on behalf of the workers that's all they wanted someone who could represent the workers that's what collective bargaining is right so People were being fired or laid off left and right. The company was hurting because of the war in Europe, cutting off all this revenue. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how much the company was hurting. They were sitting in this big, fancy, shiny new studio in Burbank right. that they just moved into, which was a, a very questionable financial move for Walt to yeah. do at that particular time. He was very confident after Snow White and did not think about world events. He could have picked up the newspaper. Hitler was doing his thing in 1938. He didn't have to. Walt did not have to buy a buy this lot in Burbank. Yeah. But Walt is always known to do that. I think the only time in his lifetime that Disney Studio ever really showed a profit was 
right after Mary Poppins. And it's probably because he didn't have a chance to spend it all. So <laughs> had he lived, it probably would have been spent and Disney world would have been in the red, but Roy kept it in the black. But anyway, that's a later story for a later time. But anyway, um, a couple more questions about uh, just how the, the, res the strike change things or whatever. Um, obviously the screen cartoonist guild is still in effect today. And mm -hmm. pretty much I would think every major studio, that has popped up since just automatically unionized of course in the, the in the <laughs> uh beginning research for my um uh book that i mentioned you know the tv cartoons thing i found there was a couple of tv cartoon studios in the 50s that were trying to get out of doing it but then they got their hands slapped pretty hard so mm, you know mm. tv spots being one of them which made the original um not the original, the the later Crusader Rabbit cartoons in the late 50s uh, and things like that. That's uh, the things I'm starting to find out. So um, the upshot of my question is, is basically, it, it seems like it's still strong, still useful uh, today for studios. And, you know, does Disney have any, as a company, have any regrets or are they strong union supporters today? Well, I don't, I don't represent the company. Yeah, but you were talking with them. I didn't know if you had a chance to ask them about how it's affected. If you didn't, that's fine too. Yeah, so, well, I can say that ever since the Disney strike, um, and here, here's another cool picture, by the way. Well, <laughs> this was early on in the strike. There's Art Babbitt, okay, right there, mm -hmm. with with his very attractive, fashionable, wide collar, <laughs> and and one of my favorite picket signs, Pinocchio, saying, "There are no strings, strings on me." me. <laughs> um. I, uh, after the strike, the studio uh, became a union shop, and it has been a union shop every day of its existence to today. Mm -hmm. the, the animators, the artists who make the Disney animation. Mm -hmm. um, since that time, of course, the company has expanded into all these other things like the parks and, um, and the TV and etc. So um, there, there are other facets of the company that are not unionized mm. and if you want to hear about the perspective from the inside like you're asking abigail disney has a new documentary out mm. new it's like a few months old now um about about her experience with her dad with, with her yeah her dad roy and her grandfather roy senior and um her experience talking to people who work at the parks and and wanting uh, less of an income gap between the highest paid earners and the, and the lowest paid earners. Uh, and she she fights against wage discrepancy. And she's, you know, she's been talking about that for a bit. But this cool documentary, I mean, I don't know her personally. I've never met her, but I'll plug her thing anyway. Okay. What's the name of it? Or do you know the What is the name of it? <laughs> what is well, the name of it well let me tell you what the name of it <laughs> well while you're looking it up i'll mention this is like i don't know if there's similarities you know but you know disney has their own cruise lines and you know a lot of times there's issues with cruise lines about registering them in other countries other than the u.s to try to avoid unionization there so 
Oh, uh, does you, do, and you know, I think there's been blocking of unions even for the parks, like you're talking about. In, the documentary is called "The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales." Okay. Um, so, does yeah. Disney as a company encounter this all the time? With a, a, every time they branch into new areas of entertainment, <laughs> it seems likely, but you know, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's just my impression. I I I don't know. Okay, that's fine. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm venturing off topic here, just kind of curious about because you know the one thing uh, that just was like really fascinating overall is like I said, you know, you went into so much depth about how unions work and what unions did and what the different mm-hmm. ones in the entertainment business did. Um, I assume you know we were talking mainly about the Hollywood studios. Did this also apply to the New York studios? You know, there's still there were still a few like Terry Tunes and a couple. Uh, that, did they unionize too, or did you you know find out? Yeah, Fleischer Fleischer had a strike first, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the strikers won that. Okay. And uh, like I, that's a whole different story. But yeah, I know because you don't really cover it. So I was, I was curious. You must have come across something in your <laughs> research and oh, you know, yeah, about I mean, the New York studios and things like that. I guess yeah. Fleischer was in Miami, but still they started in New York. Well, they moved yeah. tonight to yeah. Miami basically because uh, in it, it was in the aftermath of the strike. Like it, it gave them a chance to go. So it's like, yeah, to go with. Um, non-union workers again if i understand correctly once they moved to miami immediately after the strike the the flagship strike which is where they produced gulliver down in miami mm-hmm. um but uh i don't want to like and i hope i succeeded i didn't want to overload the reader with too many you know black and white details about how unions work or like yeah. union history i just kind of wanted to pepper it here and there yeah. to give the reader an idea that this was going on in the world and this is what people are experiencing in 1930 1935 and of course um, me is reading the book i'm like i have questions now because i've read the book you know but that's okay I, you know sometimes you might have a quick answer sometimes not um Oh yeah, the book, the actual text of the book is only 250 pages. Yeah. Um, it's not an encyclopedia. It doesn't go through like yeah. my my own personal research fills shelves. Wow. You know, because I found I got into every nook and cranny of everything, and all yeah. of that was boiled into just the story, the story yeah. of how Art Babbitt and Walt Disney mm-hmm. had this thing and then it broke apart. And only the last third of the book is about the strike itself. Everything else is about the golden age of Disney, how everyone teamed up to create snow white everyone's in the same boat for the first half of the book then immediately after snow white feelings start to change it becomes more of a commercial endeavor Mm -hmm. and waltz waltz eyes are turning into dollar signs a little bit you think um anything to do with you know pinocchio he pretty much scrapped everything that they did uh (laughs) after they got it all started um everything no just a few just a few months of work. Yeah, but I mean, it was enough. Do you months. think Pinocchio. that created a little dissent and, you know, kind of spurred it on or it didn't have anything to do with it or just didn't help? Yeah. Um, oh, well, it, it didn't help the finances of the company. It's always, it always hurts morale when someone animates something and yeah. that animation isn't used. Right. Um, Ward Kimball said that it was like getting smacked in the face with a 
cream pie when he animated one of the dwarf scenes that was yeah well the, yeah i was gonna say they even had that in snow white they had the soup eating sequence that they cut out which yeah. to this day i think that they should finish and stick it in the film <laughs> you know <laughs> because that's me because it's fully animated why not you know ink it and put it in there <laughs> you know paint it and, you know maybe they will for the um hundredth anniversary of the sh the movie who knows anyway um I, um one of the things i had at this point is just questions about art babbitt himself i mean you know like i said i learned a lot about him because there's no real book about him per se he's usually a chapter at most in any other book here you not go even. For, not even yeah he's yeah at, yeah but i mean it's never a book about him so it's like this is the closest you're going to get like you were saying originally yeah. it was supposed to be art babbitt um some of the things that uh i found interesting because mm. i never knew exactly what he did but you know i wrote down that you know he was protected but then he got laid off and then um in may it, maybe i have my dates wrong he got laid off in may of 41 or that's when the strike was then he got back in august and then he's laid off again on november 24th you know and yeah he and, was he was fired three times okay so that's what it is may august and november okay yeah. and then he had a couple lawsuits um yes. he, he, lost, he sued walt disney twice he's he lost the civil suit but what was the other suit what was the other suit i didn't get that I was writing my notes. Uh, okay. Were they both civil suits? <laughs> no, no. What, well, the, the, the civil suit was for the unpaid bonuses that he felt were owed to him okay. because their, their contracts, all the uh, animators' contracts had like a page or two about bonuses, mm -hmm. but there was no bonus schedule, you know? <laughs> there, there were no matrices about who would earn what and how much. Right. It was very, you know, ethereal. And um, uh, it kind of gave management, and I say management, but I, but I'm, you know, inferring Gunther Lessing, the vice president, who was the chief legal counsel, who's drawing up all the contracts. Mm -hmm. um, it gave them freedom to give however much they wanted, whatever they felt would be best for the company. If they wanted to use the, these bonuses as an incentive. Great. If they wanted to just take away bonuses unceremoniously, they could do that too. <laughs> but but when you're counting on bonuses because you're receiving them for two years and then you, it just stops immediately after the most successful film of all time is made by your hands, you know, mm -hmm. they stopped after Snow White. Mm -hmm. It's going to make you mad, especially mm -hmm. when you do great work on Pinocchio and great work on Fantasia. Where are these bonuses mm -hmm. and these new contracts that they had just like you know, very simply omitted any pages about the bonuses. So just as quickly as they came, they came actually not quickly, but like over a course of um, very uh, well thought out steps starting in 1935, this bonus system. Mm -hmm. And then they just stopped after Snow White. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the animators were like, where, what, who, I thought Walt trusted us, we trusted him. Um, and it created a lot of ill will, and um, and they realized that oh, Walt is trying to, uh, he's not one of us. He's his own. He's he's the captain, and he's going to treat himself as the captain of this ship. Mm -hmm. It's not we're all go down together, or we'll all <laughs> succeed together. 
Mm-hmm. As it as it was, you know, they all had that mentality, which is kind of fun. You think if we, if we fail, we'll all go broke together, but they didn't. And instead of sharing the profits like he promised, he built a studio in Burbank, mm-hmm. and he's like, "I'm sharing it with you." And they're like, "I can't put food on my table for my new family or put a mortgage on my house mm-hmm. with this stuff, Walt." Um, now that one he won that suit he won. Well, no, he lost that suit. He lost that suit too. He lost that suit for the bonuses because it wasn't stipulated in the contract. Oh, I get it. Okay. Um, and and the evidence that the company brought out, Mm -hmm. which had never been seen publicly before, were were the statements that Pinocchio and Fantasia each lost a million dollars. Oh, because of the European market. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So with so the, the the judge ruled that the company has no uh obligation to pay bonuses if if they're in the red mm-hmm. um i guess they didn't think about <laughs> this was 1941 so so they didn't think about the home entertainment market or even the re-release market at that time right right yeah <laughs> but but the suit that babbitt won was his labor board suit the national labor relations oh, okay. board that's what it is okay sued sued walt and the disney company for unfair uh discrimination for firing art babbitt and and the company's argument is that Babbitt is not as good as he used to be. And it's a very fast... I put this entire court document, for the most part, on my website for anyone who wants to read it. The, the courtroom testimony is over eight days. And uh, Art Babbitt speaks for two days. The And um, against him is Hal Adelquist, the the uh, uh, head of personnel at the Disney company and uh, Walt Disney speaks and every Disney director speaks against Art Babbitt. And then (laughs) as witnesses for Art Babbitt speaking on his behalf, every Warner brothers animator speaks for him. Uh, We have Chuck Jones, Frank Tashlin, Mm -hmm. Bob Clampett, like they all come in one by one and they all say um, he, we know that he's like one of the top, craftsman in the business mm-hmm. uh and it's just it's just a fascinating read so if you go to uh the disneyrevolt.com you can access that yourself so so he so babbitt won that suit mm-hmm. that that lawsuit and as a result the company was forced to hi- hire him back yeah and uh, and um immediately afterwards he he joined the Marines. And yeah, that was my next yeah. point that I didn't know anything about. I just thought he came back and that was it. You know, I didn't realize there's this yeah. like all these little in between details. Um, had he not done anything, um, do you think he, Art Babbitt, would have become one of the nine old men? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I always thought that myself, but I was just wanting to get your opinion on it. Yeah. So I, I think he stands above the nine old men. Yeah. The reason why those those nine men are called the nine old men are because it was a joke that Walt Disney used to call these young men mm-hmm. the nine old men after the nine Supreme Court justices that Roosevelt disparagingly called nine old men who are too suck in their ways to sign on to the New Deal. Right. <laughs> You know, so for, there was one photo of these nine guys in the arts and uh, Walt's like, yeah, these are my nine old men. But there were so many other talented artists at Disney oh, yeah. and oh, that yeah. and that status, nine old men, made them instant living legends. Yeah. 
But yeah. all of those nine guys stayed inside during the strike. Not one of them went out on strike. They were yeah. all loyal to Walt, and Walt valued loyalty above all else. Yeah. I'm, he and, what's that? I always felt that that's how th that was a qualifier to make you a nine old man. <laughs> he never went on strike. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even if it was never overtly expressed anywhere you know it's just obvious i mean if there's like one person that may have struck you know gone out on strike you know and you know he still called him a nine old man then you could say well you know it's like maybe he really is trying being walt trying to pick the cream of the crop of the artist but yeah it's like from whatever i've read or heard about art babbitt yeah he was one of the top ones, one of the top animators of all time. So, oh, he was the top. I'm yeah. telling you. And I'll yeah. give you. Would you like to hear my my reasons why he's sure, the sure. top? <laughs> uh, in our final moments of this interview, uh, not only was he a supervising animator for the, for the features, mm -hmm. like the nine old men were, he was a supervising animator for main characters of the features. Each of them for Snow White, Pinocchio, uh, Fantasia and uh and and dumbo in addition to that he was the originator of one of the core characters of goofy mm -hmm. just like just like freddie moore is called like the originator of mickey and uh norm ferguson for pluto and dick lundy became that for donald um babbitt was that for goofy on top of that it was babbitt who brought in figure drawing classes so everyone could better their 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 mm -hmm. drawing skills and he brought in an art teacher Mm -hmm. named Don Graham from Chenard, which is now Cal Arts. Mm -hmm. And they were and that started a whole like in-studio art school. Art Babbitt brought in method acting to characters. He called that he wrote a treatise called The Character Analysis of the Goof, and he applied method acting to the characters. That became the key to personality animation that Walt was seeking for so long. Art Babbitt used his own movie camera to do live action reference for some characters, not rotoscoping, but reference. He wasn't asking people to 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 be traced. He was asking his friends to move in a certain way, and that would be that would inform how the characters would move. Right. And that that source of live action reference, he was the person to bring that into the studio, and that has been used in every animation studio, every animation studio worth itself ever since. Stop yep. motion, CG, hand drawn. Yep. So he did all of those things. He he pushed animation further than any other animator at Disney Studio. He was in line with Walt. He was entirely invested in the art form just as much as Walt. And he worked hard and he worked extra hours and he thought outside the box and he brought all these things to make everyone rise above where they were. And he, it was Babbitt who made the, the Disney studio uh, the supreme studio in the world. Mm -hmm. Um. So it's so bizarre how he and Walt, who were so in sync creatively, mm -hmm. became so bitterly ripped apart. Right. But I get it. I mean, if you're passionate about something, you want it to do, you know, in defense of art, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure he was so passionate about it. He was willing to put his job and career on the line to better the whole you know, company and industry even. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's such an interesting character though. Yeah. He's such an interesting, yeah. and I wanted to do like a character analysis of him. I wanted to do to Art Babbitt what Art Babbitt did to Goofy and get inside his head, yeah. figure out why a guy who was earning, he was like, he was like Jay Gatsby. He was living like a great Gatsby life. Mm -hmm. He was young, earning tons of money, 
living large, why he would why he would sacrifice that or even a thread to sacrifice that for for this, for a union. It was just it's a real Romeo and Juliet story where two people are like aligned. Yeah. Maybe not Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't end up dying or in love with each other. But it was a Shakespearean tragedy. That's for yes, sure. I'll agree with that. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's just, you know, very headstrong, passionate people, you know, here, you know, yes. and headstrong. Uh, Clash yeah. of the Titans. <laughs> Clash of the know. Titans. And, and that's why that's why I asked earlier, you know, you know, it's it's kind of surprising. Well, you did reveal that he did have one sh- small studio doing t- TV commercials, but, you know, it's just surprising Art Babbitt. Maybe he knew better because of the Ub Iwerks situation, you know. Um, you know, when Ub Iwerks was pulled away and he yeah. got his own studio but struggled during that and then ended up coming back to Disney. Maybe he was all aware of that, but I don't know. I'm making up stuff, so who knows? Um I I guess Disney as a studio has kind of made amends, you know. Didn't they um honor him before he did pass away in nineteen ninety two? Well uh, um as a Disney legend and stuff like he that. He earned thought, his Disney legend yeah. award posthumously after oh, he died. Oh, it's posthumous. Okay. Yeah. Oops. So he died. At, so, so, so yeah, he, he died in nine, 1992, but, mm. but, uh, but Roy E. Disney did send him a, a package of, it, it was a uh, Fantasia when it was like re-released on video. Mm-hmm. Um, and as his wife says, um, and, and, and witnesses who've seen this along with, it was a note that said um, for someone uh like for you art um for uh uh let's see i can't remember quite what it said but i wrote it in the book but it was something very sweet okay. like roy e disney really tried Another to reason to get the book <laughs> yeah yeah anyway. <laughs> and 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 babbitt he was on his deathbed at the time he was he was hospitalized and and he held it and he said it's so nice to be one of the guys again That's very um nice. And uh, also in 1987, Roy E. Disney invited Babbitt to a 50th anniversary of Snow White party hmm. where a bunch of other animators were. So it was Babbitt and a bunch of other non-strikers who were there. Hmm. And feelings were still strong. Yeah, Feelings were still strong in 1987, <laughs> which is, yeah. you know, crazy to think about. But these were people who did something incredible. They did the near impossible to make Snow White. And I want I wanted to understand what that was like too. I myself was an animator for 10 years. I wanted to put my experience into the experience of these animators. Like I there's there's a certain understanding when you work in the field of like what the personalities are like, what the dynamics are like, mm-hmm. what the hours are like. Yeah. <laughs> that you don't really get doing anything else. So I had like an intimate understanding of of what it's like to walk the halls of an animation studio Mm -hmm. and um especially when you're making stuff for you know entertainment Mm -hmm. and i wanted to take the reader by the hand during the first half of the book and walk them through the halls of hyperion avenue Mm -hmm. and you know i try not to overload the reader with details but i say what color the wallpaper was and i say (laughs) like what sound you hear you know you hear the, the the sound of uh of the moviola clicking 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 sounds like bacon frying that's what the mm-hmm. artist said it sounded like bacon frying mm-hmm. and maybe you're smelling cigarettes and maybe you're seeing like tureens of uh tobacco juice on the floor <laughs> and and people are playing pranks on each other and people are uh kind of like 
grouping together into cohorts and into cliques and people are this is, some are the studious ones and some are the wise guys and some are the sporty guys and some are the intellectuals um and everyone's having a great time because it's the 1930s you are in your 20s your boss is in his 30s and you're basically everything you do is like a big f you to 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 the movie going public they're like you can't do that and you're like watch me Watch me make you fall in love with a drawing. <laughs> Very cool. Um, well, you know, I really appreciate you being on the show. This kind of really explains a lot. And I, you know, I'm glad you wrote the book, you know, because, you know, it, it, it really explains the situation that is a little more uh, important or in depth than you know i originally thought which i'm sure there's other people like oh you know it's you know that's not that important no it was it was important and it affects disney animation to this day so yeah, <laughs> yeah. um at this point uh i guess uh you can let people know if you're going to make any personal appearances anywhere to oh, yeah. the book. um and then how to get in contact with you and how to buy the book and good stuff like that so have the okay book. the juicy details well you can go anywhere and buy the book if it's in your bookstore get it there if it's not ask for it they can order it for you if you go to the publisher's website you can get a discount yeah very nice look at you got a nice beautiful hardcover binding and everything it's cutting off the, the picture so that's why i put that. <laughs> yeah get thank stuck. you thank you <laughs> anyway um the uh so if you go to chicagoreviewpress.com mm. and use the discount code disney25 all of your listeners and viewers can get a 25% discount on the book for a limited time only. So that's, that's, that's a sweet deal. Uh, if anyone's going to be in San Francisco on February 18th, I don't know if you have any San Francisco listeners or fans out there. So well, that's going to be, okay. I used to live there, but that was a while ago. Great town. <laughs> yeah. Great town. Uh, that's the Saturday of uh, president's weekend. So I'm going to be at the San Francisco Cartoon Museum, uh, talking about the book, signing copies between two and four. Is that the Cartoon Art Museum with Andrew Farrago, or a different museum? Um, uh, uh, Andrew Farrago. I don't know. Andrew I think there's only one Cartoon Museum in San Francisco, isn't there? Well, there's a Cartoon Art Museum, and that's at Fisherman's Wharf now. They've moved. Yes, okay. So then that's who it is. Andrew Farrago is a curator. He's a friend of mine. So. Anyways, oh, okay. So, anyway, tell them to say hi. <laughs> anyway, okay. um, and then the other museum, which is Disney related, you've mentioned the Walt Disney Family. Oh, yeah. Museum, which is also yeah. in San Francisco. So. Oh, yeah. Fun, fun museum to visit. I, I will not be speaking there, though. Okay. But <laughs> fun, fun museum. I give them so much credit for having a, a whole permanent exhibit on the strike. Mm -hmm. The Walt Disney Family Museum has a whole corner on the second floor just about the strike. Mm -hmm. So really special that they did that they have a little bit about walt's testimony at the house on american activities committee mm -hmm. following the strike um it really paints walt disney as a human figure and that's what i tried to do show him that he's a human who's acting and reacting from the things of his time mm -hmm. so if anyone wants to get in touch with me you can find me at www.jakesfriedman.com the disneyrevolt.com my socials are at jakesfriedman on the twitters and on the instagrams mm -hmm. 
Very cool. Yeah. Um, are you planning to go to like uh, say any comic conventions or anything in the next few months or anything at this time, or you're just going month oh. by month, you know? Because <laughs> I know it's like it, I've interviewed people for the longest time, and it's like I'm not going anywhere with this pandemic. But you know, this year is like the year people are starting to go out and about again. So, any other appearances besides the museum, or um, uh, there are a couple of... small appearances here and there. Some uh yeah there's some in new york but okay. as far as as far as big cons i'll keep you up to date if you follow me on the socials there we go all right, yeah. <laughs> all right. well i want to thank you jake for being my guest it was a very informative book i'm very happy that i did read it after you know uh, not being initially sure or certain <laughs> and you know it is one of the uh one of the best Disney books I've read. So it's like, it is a keeper wow. in my collection. You know, I'm very picky on certain Disney books. If it's very superficial or then, you know, I don't keep them, but you know, if it's something like I'm going to return to this, this is a good reference. Then it stays on my shelf. So this one's oh, a keeper. So anyway. Thank you. High, high praise. <laughs> All thank right. Thank you, Mark. All right. I thank you again, Jake. And uh, that wraps up another episode of the fun ideas podcast. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Jake S. Friedman, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 202 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.